before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. My guest on this episode is Dan Oliver, the founder of Myrmican Capital. Dan is returning to the podcast after a previous appearance on The Endgame uh, with Bill and I about a year ago. Now, with events everywhere moving so fast right now, I wanted to chat with Dan to get some historical context around what we see transpiring today, and importantly, to look at events in markets and inflation through the prism of previous credit and inflation cycles. And as you're about to hear, Dan has a rare gift for doing just that. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dan Oliver. Well, Dan, mate, welcome back to the podcast. Last time you joined Bill and I for the Endgame, this time it's just you and me. And it was it was almost a year ago, I think, to the day that we had our first conversation. I think we're a couple of weeks past that. And what an interesting year it's been. It's it's amazing. I mean, I, I, following the credit cycle for so long and to be actually living through the end stages of it, which is both scary and also fascinating. I, I was I'm reminded of the Roman historian, Pliny the Elder, who was such a scientist that when Vesuvius erupted, he raced to go investigate it and, and he suffocated. I hope I don't suffer the same fate, but it, it's, <laughs> it, it is sort of an intellectual fascination at the same time, knowing that it's it's a dire situation that, that you know, many people might not survive even, or, or at least their capital might, might not survive. And so navigating is, is very tricky. And, and I, I go back to the idea that Churchill and many others have expressed that the, the further back in history you look, the further forward you can see. And yeah. all the things we're seeing today, the, 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 the war, this, the, the collapse of the asset market, stimulus, everything's happened before. And, and you know, one of the things I like to do um, in my writings is, is to find quotations from other times and other places that are, are so different from our world socially. And, and yet they say the exact same things when it comes to money and credit. And, and I think that you know, whenever you talk about things happening today, people have their own uh, ideas, their, their own prejudices that they may not know about, and they react in certain ways. But when you talk about these situations in other cultures, you don't have those that baggage, that emotional baggage. So you can actually look at it scientifically, and, and then and then apply those lessons back to our situation, which which is what I like to do. Well, it's funny because um, you know the point you make is is so true. The, the amount of times I read the word unprecedented, um, and it always kind of makes me shake my head and, and causes a wry smile to creep across my lips because, as you point out, none of this is unprecedented. It's quite the opposite, in fact. But you mentioned the credit cycle there, and I think that's a good place to start for this conversation because it's something you've done so much work on. And I think credit cycle to many, many people is a very short-term phenomenon. They're looking at the the kind of the shorter-term credit cycles um, you know, between recessions, um, aligning them to interest rate cycles, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously your work takes a much, much, much bigger view. So let's talk about what a credit cycle means to you and then talk about the credit cycle or cycles you think are currently in play and, and your observations of them. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I, I, to reiterate your point, the, the credit cycle, the way people think, commonly think about it is 
the, there's a recession, the, the Fed prints money or eases conditions, there's a big boom, the, the, they take the punch away that they never actually do, but they're supposed to, things crash. And, and that is certainly part of the cycle, but, but you're right. What, what I'm talking about really is the arc of almost civilization, I mean, the arc of how banking systems uh, evolve. And since it's been a year, I don't think I'll bore your audience with going, going over my, my view of, of, of how this works. And again, it's, this comes not from theory, the, the way modern economic theories develop, you're looking at models. One of the things I always like to point out to people is that the study of economics through the 19th century was thought to be humanity. So you could look at what happened in Rome and Greece and the ladies and draw lessons out of it because the stories about man and scarcity and, and how you react to that. And it wasn't until after World War I that it became a quote-unquote science where you had math and models and, and all those things. But, but, but let me dive into it here quickly just to give a summary because I've, you know, your audience has heard this before but they may not remember. And, and that is everywhere you look um, in, in history, the original money is always based on gold and, and the precious metals. Now, I say that it's really liquidity, and, and, and you can look up Carl Menger for these principles. In China, for example, they didn't have any gold and silver, so they used copper. So it d- depends on what's available. And of course, we, we know that in certain exceptional circumstances, cigarettes become money in prisons, for example, or seashells, places like that. But what the market is searching for is liquidity and a way to solve the problem of, I have goods today, I want to trade it with you, you don't have what I want, so you got to give me something that I can then use to go buy something else either in the present or in the future. And, and that's the thing that, that money solves. And you really need a complex society to make that work. So, so, so money begins with, with gold. And, and, and really banks, what banks do is in this first stage of what I call a credit cycle, is they liquefy gold. Gold coins are all different. And for thousands of years, it was a problem because the state would say, okay, this gold coin is worth some certain amount. And so obviously, you, you, if you could clip a little piece off that gold coin, and retain its value, you, you would do it. So there was clipping and shaking. You, you print a bag and you shake it around and little bits pop off. And, and then you share the bits and, and you make money that way. Uh, and, and so that, that was always a, a problem. And so what the bank's function was is you deposited your gold in a bank. The bank said, yeah, okay, you have X amount of gold in deposit. Here is a note or a deposit account or wherever they did it that represents the gold. So then you go out in the market and the merchants don't need to worry about the gold content of your coins they can trust the fact that they have access to the gold should they need it. And what always happens is, and again, this is all market-driven. This isn't the state. It's the market. Merchants prefer that. They don't want to measure gold coins. It's a pain. And so people prefer to use the paper. And so nobody ever goes against the gold from the bank because why would you? But doing so reduces your liquidity, not your value, but your liquidity. And so that's always the first stage, and that, that's a good thing. And then closely related to that, which is always too complex to actually talk about. I can only write about it because it's so complex. But in economies, it's important to remember, every product is the product of a supply chain, right? And the, and the simple example is always the farmer grows the wheat, sells it to the miller, he grinds it up into flour, sells it to the baker, the baker makes bread, sells it to the consumer. But every product is like that. And some supply chains are really, really long. Like if you look at the supply chain of an iPhone, it'd be tremendously long and complex. Bread is very simple, which is why I makes you an example. And the problem there is a problem of credit, but I call it commercial credit. It's not the kind of credit, hey, I want to buy a million dollar house. I don't have the money. The bank will lend me the money to buy the house. I don't have it. It's the miller sells the flour to the baker. He wants to reorder flour from the farm, wheat from the farmer, but the baker won't pay him for 30 days because he doesn't sell the bread for 30 days. So what, what does the miller do? And that's the second original function of banks is you take that note on the baker and that bank gives you present money for it. But 
What's really important to remember in this system, and this again grows absolutely naturally without any state, state interference or influence, is that the bank pays less than the fair value of it because of default risk, because of the, of the time value of money. So it's after transactions already occurred and they pay you less than the amount of money, which the Miller accepts because that he wants the ready cash out of to, to reorder and the bank makes a profit through the difference of basically time value of money. And, and so I would say any big empire, country or nation always starts this way. Because to get rich and powerful, to be able to afford an army and conquer people, you need to have a big economy. And, and the way you grow an economy is through free markets and, and basic capitalism, however form it, it evolves or whatever you call it. It's the idea of people doing what they're best at doing and be able to trade according to their talents and having a financial system that allows them to do that. And so that, that's sort of pure commercial banking. And then what always happens eventually is that the state gets involved, and that's when you're in trouble. And, and I say, you know, when the state doesn't tell you what a gold coin is worth, there's no Gresham's Law problem, right? I mean, people say, well, what's that right. coin worth? And when the bank is not protected by the state, if the banks aren't lending against bad things, and in other words, the asset side of the bank gets, gets dodgy, people on the liability side, the notes and the deposits run in the bank and say, give me my money back quickly. And so the market shuts those banks down really fast. You don't need a regulator. You just need the market. And you don't have big crashes because you don't, there's no ability for, for the bank system to, to build up big, uh, big amounts of credit. But, but what always happens is the state says, okay, well, we're going to say that this gold coin is worth a certain amount. And we're going to say that the notes of our domestic banks is, is worth a certain amount. And you can pay those in taxes. And you can you pay them to your creditors. And so in other words, it, it subsidized the value of those liabilities, bank liabilities. And once the banks are free from the market, then they can go start lending against assets. They can, they can give you that mortgage to buy the million dollar house, even though you don't have any money and, and finance it like 90%, right? Because they know that, that no one's going to run in the bank to get their money out because they can use those notes to pay their, their debtors and, and their taxes. And then of course, in our system, we also have FDIC insurance. So even if you knew that you know Chase, for example's assets were totally crap, which they probably are, you don't really care because if they go down, you know the bank, the, the government's going to bail you out. And, and this is what allows the banks to go from commercial financing, where they're buying uh, uh, things in the market that are already in the market at, at a discount, uh, a transaction occurred, to lending against uh, assets, right? So, so you can build ships, even though you have no capital, you can buy houses, even though you have no money, right? you can do, you can buy stocks and lever them up as the stock goes higher. This is what creates, creates the bubble. And it's great when the bubble's happening, right? The prices are going up. Uh, everyone's getting richer. Uh, the state gets lots of taxes because there's so many transactions, capital gains taxes and all the rest of it. It's really, really wonderful. But the problem is that, again, probably the, this is the Austrian business cycle thesis, what I call the credit cycle is, what happens is that when asset prices go up, that signals a scarcity, right? When, when housing prices double, it tells the market, hey, there aren't enough houses. Go, go build more. And, and that's what price signals do in a free market is that signal scarcity. So entrepreneurs rationally go out and they, they borrow much more money from the banks. And they go bid on inputs. So you get your commodity prices going crazy, right? You build tons of houses or office buildings or Airplanes, or you know, whatever it is that the asset market is pumping up, and, and then you get over capacity because the increase in these assets wasn't driven by consumer demand. It wasn't a real scarcity. It was simply bad pricing developed by the banks. And so when they when the cash flow falls because there's too many of these things over capacity, all of a sudden these projects, these malinvestments, cannot meet 
their interest payments to, to their to the bank and the people who funded them, and then and they liquidate. And again, if you read the history of this stuff, the first ages you, you have a very small state and you know the country just getting going, an empire just getting going, and you don't have these problems. The second stage. Where the, where the state lends its authority to the money, you get this additional credit cycle where, with the credit cycle where assets go up and crash. And, and that's kind of the end of the story. If you know a central bank, you know, in the United States, for example, in the 19th century, everyone goes broke, capitalists lose a lot of money, you know, labor gets, gets fired, goods prices get thrown in the market cheaply because everyone has too much inventory. So prices collapse, everyone's broke for six months, but the assets are still there. And even if they shouldn't have been built, they're still there. And that's very useful. And you see that. For example, they built too many railroads and, and canals. Well, okay, they shouldn't have been built. But, you know, I mean, this is Schumpeter's theory, which I don't really agree with, but it's a good point that now when you come out of the cycle, you know, no one's starving. In fact, there's too much, too many productive assets and they've become really cheap. And the next guy who wasn't as exposed to the credit cycle, he wasn't the, the gambler. He was the guy who was hoarding his money. And, he, and the saver guy comes in and he takes over ownership of it. He's a much better steward of capital than, than the speculators uh, were. So he, he takes these over. We saw this in broadband, of course, in 2000, right? The, I was going to make that exact point. Yeah, exactly right. And that then can help new industries. And Schumpeter thought that this was great, that this is how it should happen because now you've all excess capital. But you know the problem is you've got a waste to a lot of that capital that doesn't get used. I mean, canals go to nowhere, broadband... Uh, a bill that has no purpose, um, and, and and so it's it's it involves a lot of waste. But again, without a central bank, uh, the economy pretty quickly readjusts itself. And you see, in the 19th century, lots of credit cycles, lots of bouts, horrible busts. They last over like six nine months, and then people pick up and and move over. Even shorter than that, because it's just you got to work, so labor's got to take lower prices. Yeah. The capitalist is wiped out, so the next guy takes over. And so that that's you don't get the big societal great depressions, big wars, that, that that kind of thing. But 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 then the next stage is the banks actually in this country elsewhere. Uh, with, as this kept happening, they said, "Look, we don't like being wiped out. I'm a, I'm a rich banker. I, I you know have all these things and these 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 waves of defaults come along and and disrupts my my life. So wouldn't it be great to have a lender of last resort, a, a, a such a bank that can bail me out when the depression comes? And in, in this country, again, as a historical fact. The, the guy who shepherded through this, the Federal Reserve Act was a guy named Robert Owens. And, and he was exactly that character. He, his father was a railroad baron, was wiped out in one of the railroad crashes of, I think it was 1873. So he, he went from being rich to being poor through connections and hard work. He became out of a bank. His bank almost failed in the, in the panic of 1893. And he was like, oh, my God, you know, the economy is so unstable. The animal spirits is so unfair. So what we need is a, uh, is a powerful state-sponsored bank to bail out the economy when you have these these crashes, uh, and and that's of course what I mean, it was his design that 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 did that essentially. It's fascinating because there are two very different ways to look at this. You know, if you if you look at the intent of having a, a central bank to let's not use the term bailout because it's pejorative in this particular instance, but let's to stabilize the system when needed. If you look at that. And you look at man's constant striving to reduce volatility in life in general, it makes sense. It makes sense to say, well, okay, we see these panics every six months. So why don't we have someone standing by, a firefighter, that every six months when one of these panics happens or every three years or whenever it may be, steps in, douses the flames, and then steps out again. You know, And it makes sense when you think about it in terms of man's desire for stability and predictability and smooth sailing. But of course, once that happens, 
you it's the thin end of a very very big wedge as we've seen you know from 1913 the federal reserve act we've seen what's happened in the 109 years since then and it's been one way traffic until we get to where we are today where the central bank has an unholy amount of influence on every sector of the economy just by putting someone behind a, a lectern a lunch somewhere obscure and and speaking whatever it takes yeah exactly right so so to talk a little bit Dan, about about that path from here's a great idea to manage depressions and try and stop them being as extreme as they are and maybe shallowing them to the entire world hanging on every word of a central banker who are almost guaranteed to drive us over the edge of the next cliff. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and again, I'll address that through a historical example that's relevant to our conversation. That is, the Federal Reserve was founded in 1913, and their function became almost immediately to finance World War I. And so it wasn't about commercial liquidity, which was which was the other intent of, of the bank. It was funding bonds to fund the war effort, to fund asset investments. And what happened was because so much credit poured into the market during World War II, even though in a war, you would think that given the fact you're redirecting effort from economic growth to destruction, right, that prices should go down and asset prices should go down because of less savings and you're storing things. Well, no, asset prices went crazy. There was a giant bubble in the late 19-teens because the Fed uh, was funding uh, all this. And, and one, of the, one of the outcomes of that was, as, as always happens, is that you have huge investments in very distant uh, capital items. And, and, and again, as the, the methods happen, it's somewhat complex, but when the Fed prints money, as I mentioned before, it allows the banks and, and the bank's customers to bid on assets, asset prices can go up. It doesn't just signal scarcity, as I mentioned earlier. It also lowers the discount rate because for every investment that has a steady cash flow stream, if the price goes up, it just it's a mathematical function. It means the discount rate goes down. And when you have a lower discount rate, if you just think of it, how the discounted cash flow analysis works from an investment perspective, the lower the discount rate goes, the more value becomes attributed to a high capex long-term projects. And so what happened in the late teens was you had massive investments, not just in real estate, which is a high capex long-term investment, but things like automobiles and other, other giant commodity projects. And the Fed in 1919, Benjamin Strong, the head of the New York Fed, saw the out-of-control asset markets, and, and, he, and he saw the overinvestment in these, in these asset markets. And he wrote to the Secretary of the Treasury in 1919, he wrote, the day of deflation approaches, the process of deflation is a painful one involving loss, unemployment, bankruptcy, and social and political disorders. We must deflate, all caps, you wrote this in number, we must deflate, notwithstanding the hardships and losses resulting. Now, Powell is probably saying the same thing behind closed doors. I mean, but so nothing ever changes. But they raised the interest rate. The war ended. They said, look, we got to get things under control. And, and what happened was the auto industry in particular was crushed because they had so much debt and all of a sudden rates went up and they couldn't, you know, I mean, this was really they over capacity. They couldn't make their, their payments. And Senator Owens what was giving speeches condemning the Federal Reserve, saying, look, this is the greatest power, financial power in the world. This is 1920s in these speeches. And they blew it. You know, here we had, they were supposed to stabilize things and people who invested all this money and all this capital, all this infrastructure being wiped out. And it was the Fed's job to save them. And so to answer your question, what, what, what happens is that the stabilization, what it does is 
It creates malinvestments. The malinvestments want to liquidate. The market wants to liquidate them all the time. And, and the sooner they liquidate, the more you can go back to a, a rational economy where prices and consumer demand drive investment and, and people get what they want. But the, but the more that happens, the more out of kilter you get, the more force the Fed has to, the government has to exert to keep those investments going. And the story of the 20s is that the World War I created all this overcapacity and all, you know, spent commodity, oil and steel and all, all rubber, all those things. And the prices kept wanting to come down because there's too much capacity. And every time the prices came down, the Fed would run out and buy government bonds. They, were, they didn't call it QE back then, but that's essentially what it was. And they did it. I mean, you, you, you read the writings back then for the Fed governor. They did it because they were trying to stabilize prices. And the economists, Keynes and Haltry, all the great economists said the Fed's job is to stabilize prices. Well, they stabilize them, but they stabilize them too high. Right. That's <laughs> the problem. Right. And, and, and that's the answer to your question. That's it. In a nutshell, you know, this idea of, of stability of prices versus the idea of stability of the economic system. And they are not necessarily the same thing. You know, prices can move up and no one seems to have a problem until we get to extremes like we're at today where it's starting to hurt people. Yeah. But for some reason, prices coming down to the consumer is not such a bad thing. Obviously, it, prices can come down much easier than wages can come down because it's very tough to, to cut people's wages. You end up with all sorts of problems on your hand. So there's this sweet spot where the, the, the working man's wage is unaffected and prices want to come down. And we've seen this in Japan for the last... 20 odd years, you know, they've been in this situation. So what is it that makes central bankers particularly and governments so desperate to, to combat deflation? Well, well, I mean, again, let's, let's be precise about it. They like asset inflation. They like it when asset prices... Okay, yeah, that's a good point. No, you're right. Like you're absolutely right. deflation when, when good prices go down, but not if good prices going down is going to bankrupt the, the industries that make it. And, and also... In terms of commodities, if commodities fall too quickly, then the Fed thinks, "Oh my goodness, there's an economic slowdown." It means demand is faltering, and so we need to we need to get those prices up. They they like rising prices just as long as they don't rise too fast, and that's the problem they face. And I'll read another quotation for you. This is George Harrison testifying in 1931 about the Great Crash of 29. He replaced Benjamin Strong, who died suddenly in 1928, and the Fed became aware exactly what you say is that asset prices were out of control. And yet goods prices were falling again, which signaled that business needed stimulating, but the asset markets need to be reined in. And so, and so what is the central bank to do? And, and he testified to Congress, I do not think it is possible through any action on the part of the reserve system or any other central banking authority to make money cheap for business and expensive for speculation. The credit pool is too big and fluid a pool for any group of men, whoever they may be, to dictate the rates for funds that are put to different purposes. So that, that, that's idea one. Now, the idea two, which I think is very, very relevant to where we are today, we went on to say, if, on the other hand, you can advance the rate quickly enough without regard to any temporary effect on the business rate, you can probably accomplish what you want to accomplish without too severe pressure on business because the higher discount rate will, in the first instance, put pressure on the banks to liquidate their call loans, these margin loans, and not their customers' business loans. It has always been that way. And I, I've read that. This is fascinating because... That's exactly what they're doing today. They're saying, look, we don't want to crush business. We want to crush the market. So we'll raise, we'll raise rates really fast. Yeah. And, and hopefully this will crush the speculators who work on short-term money 
and they'll all blow up. The markets will come down, asset markets, and then before too much damage to the economy, we'll run in and lower rates against so the economy can keep going. I mean, it's just fascinating. It's, it's exactly yeah, exact yeah. thing. They had it work out in, in, in 1929. It didn't work out so well, that, that, that right. period. They haven't, they haven't taken that leap of faith yet. It's so interesting because what we've seen, certainly in, in let's call it living memory, because most people's living memory of, of being in markets goes back, let's call it 40 years, maybe 50 and some. What we've seen is a kind of a bias towards protecting the speculators, you know, the animal spirits. We've seen this many, many times where they've tried to raise rates gently, not quickly. And obviously that the pain that the speculators feel is almost immediate and it's generally speaking quite sharp, and they've always blinked. They've always stepped away. Now we're in the situation where they're desperately trying to convince people that they're that, that they're going to do exactly what you just said, exactly what George Harrison, not the Beatle, we should add for for anyone <laughs> confused by that, uh, exactly what he said. Right, you need to kill the speculators, and before you do too much damage, step in and smooth the waters for the business community. However, if you read any commentary right now. What we're seeing is a lot of people are predicting exactly that, that they're going to get the rates up as fast as they can. They'll go another 75, maybe 100 basis points in July, and then maybe another 50, and they're going to get rates up as quickly as they can and as painfully as they can for asset prices. But already the commentary is based around when they pivot, which they will, it's going to be fantastic for markets, and markets are going to go screaming up again. You know, So that mindset has been completely and utterly kind of woven into the fabric of anybody, I'm using this in air quotes for people listening, investing today. How do you square that circle? Well, I, I think it can't is the answer. That, that's, that's why I quit, but I, I'm quite serious. I mean, how did it work out for that theory? That was the theory they, they rolled right, out. Right. Right now. It didn't work out so well. And and you're already seeing, I mean, across the economy, the, the, the Fed recognizes that they created too much money. And if you look at a measures of liquidity, deposit accounts plus money market funds, and and how much cash people have. Forget about their their bank account, their, their stock portfolio, their bank accounts. It, it's gone up, I think, fifty percent since, since two thousand nineteen. It's an enormous number, and so they not only have to deflate asset markets, which gives you the confidence to spend, they've got to deflate the cash markets, which is your ability to spend. They're two two different things, right? And and they're trying to attack attack both of them. <laughs> but of course, once you start spending then the business's revenue goes down. And yeah, you can get deflation, which I think is going to happen. I think we'll have a big deflationary wave, which again, you read the history of big inflations, whatever, you know, your Weimar is the big, the big mama case, but they're all the same. What, what convinces the central banks to keep printing are these enormous deflationary waves that threaten to roll over the entire system. And so you're again, you're, you're already seeing this demand, but the problem I have too is that the speculative markets, the, the guys who, who made all the money in the last two years, but really the last 40 years, have different spending profiles than a normal person who works at, at a normal job and buys things. I, mean, I, I read this morning, apparently, the, the market for Rolexes and Patek Philippe's is collapsing because who is buying them? Well, Bitcoin millionaires are buying them. Well, they're not millionaires anymore, so they don't buy them anymore. Now, that's a tiny market. It's not going to affect them a lot. But, but take that idea and spread it among the entire economy. I mean, in the last 40 years... Uh, vacation homes have, have been in a huge bull market. People have have spent careers, uh, you know, as realtors or builders or developers, all those sorts of things. Well, well what if the economy rationalized in such a way that the speculators aren't buying 
giant mansions in the Hamptons anymore, or, or, or scale it down. I mean, people can't afford to spend half the half the year in Florida at a little house. They've got to spend time at home doing something else. Well, you know, even if your economic demand is the same, it shifts. It does something else. And so you require a period of, of rationalization where you stop the bubble activities economically and start you know, more sustainable uh, economic uh, uh, activities. But that requires unemployment. It requires reinvestment. It requires people going broke requires all those things, which again, you know, it's going to be painful. And Benjamin Strong said it, Powell said it, Mackenzie Marston said it in 1969. I mean, it, these transitions are very, very painful. And so there's no way I don't think they can do it without pain. And the problem is that, as I know many of your guests have talked about myself as well, the longer you go in the credit cycle and the more distant you go from where the economy would be without the credit inflation, the, the more painful it is to, to go back. And I, I don't know how our society can handle that that, that kind of pain. We're, we're just not used to it. The last time we had a major depression was obviously the 30s. And the country's in a very different place. The 30s, people trusted the government, which they don't today. The population was, was homogenous, which is not today. You know, people all went to church, where they don't today. I mean, there, there are all kinds of social glue that we have that they get through that period, which we don't have today. And it's, I mean, the, the, the transfer payments, there were no transfer payments in the 30s. You, you, your community helped you out. Well, what if what if the money fails today and the government can't make those transfer payments or at least not the extent people are used to? And what, what are the social implications for that? So I, I think I think the Fed is really treading on a lot. I mean, they're doing what we, what we talked about, trying to get rid of speculators and keep business without failing. But but the risk is that the real purpose of the Fed, what, what the true purpose is, um, is to fund the government. That's the purpose is. And it's designed to do that through a roundabout way. They don't fund it directly. Well, they do now, but, but they're they're designed to fund the banks who fund the government, right? And so the banks blow up, who's going who's to buy the treasury bonds? And, and that's the primary function. And you just you just follow the, the, the chain of logic. The, the market crashes, all the uh, capital gains tax income revenue goes away right overnight. Business slows in a progressive uh, tax environment, a small decline in your in your income results in a pretty big decline in your tax bill, right? Because it's progressive. So all of a sudden, the banks are in trouble, the government's in trouble. And what's the Fed going to do? Just step back and watch the whole thing blow up the way they did in the 30s? I think that's a very unlikely situation. So, so I know there's a lot of discussion about pivot. Of course, they're going to pivot. They have to pivot because they don't pivot. The financial system goes down, the banks go down, and the state goes down. And, and that ain't going to happen without a fight. So when when you said there that we're in a very different situation, obviously no words could be truer. But while this, the broader situation is very, very different, society is very, very different, economic environment is very, very different, the composition of the economy is very, very different, the playbook remains the same. And so, as you say, they will pivot because they have to pivot and they have to step in. So when you think through historical examples of this part of the cycle, Really, the one constant we do have is the action of the central banks. We pretty much know what they're going to do. We don't quite know when. We don't know quite how serious they are and what it takes to ultimately frighten them into pivoting. But what do those same actions look like in this very different society? And what are the likely chain of events once they do pivot? Do you see them once again getting their own way? Or do you think this cycle is much more like the late 20s, early 30s, in that even if they do pivot, it's not going to matter as much. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's different because back in the 20s and 30s, the, the Fed still was more constrained with the power with what it could do. 
and, and they, they, they had a gold coverage uh, a ratio that they had to obey by law right. for yeah, great point. which prevented certain things. And, and so the banks were allowed to collapse. I can't remember how many collapsed, but something like a third or the banks just disappeared. And the depositors got basically IOUs that said, okay, well, the banks will liquidate their larger mass store time and you can get whatever they liquidate them for. And the answer was not very much, especially once you, you know, add the fees, the lawyers, guys, I mean, and that was like nothing compared to today of, of how much the, the middlemen, the parasites take for that kind of thing. And so part of what they did to restart the economy was stimulating, right? It wasn't just the central bank printing. It was, it was borrowing money to spend a certain particular projects and then, of course, the, the biggest stimulus, which I think we'll talk about in a minute, is, is going to war. Right? That's a great stimulus. You, you get, I mean, think of all those unemployed young men and you stick them in a battleship and some barracks and they're happy because they're being patriotic, but you, you've solved a major social problem al- along the way. Uh, and you get to build things and, and, and again, borrow money against the future to, to spend and create a war industry, which employs lots of people. And by the time the 30s roll around, you're really more in the stimulus part of the credit cycle. And, and we've got a little off you know, kilter here in terms of describing the credit cycle. But what I was going to say is that we talked about earlier about what a bank does with no government involvement. And then they start a cycle with government involvement, no central bank. And with this central bank, first you get monetary intervention. That's always the first step because it's the experts do it. You don't need Congress to vote on spending. You're not taxing people. It, it's, it's very behind the scenes. And it's designed to help. And again, that was sort of the 20s of the story of the last 40 years, really. But, but then you also get this physical side, right, which was the story of the 30s. Uh, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, ran a platform of Hoover being uh, a wild spender. And he was an incumbent and balanced the budget. And it was a slander to suggest that we would go off the gold standard in, in Roosevelt administration. Of course, the first two things he did was to go off the gold standard and take Hoover spending and expand it just you know, massively. And so that's what they did. And things like creating the, the social security policy schemes. Uh, the 30-year mortgage uh, was developed in that time period because the idea is, look, if you can lower the amortization schedule, then you can buy houses at a higher price. And the free market would never allow a 30-year mortgage. <laughs> it's just, right. It would never happen. You, you can't borrow 30-year money. So how on earth can you, can you issue a 30-year mortgage? But if the state is going to backstop it and guarantee it through Fannie Mae and other structures, well, then, well, then, well, then, well sure, then, then you can do it. And that's what they did. And so I mean, you know, applying again those lessons to today, what we see are not distinct stages, but an amalgamation of monetary invention, which we've had, and now and the physical side, which comes and goes, right? I mean, the Bushes would send checks to everybody, and that was fun. And then Obama's would send checks to just certain people, right? It was just, just people who supported them. Okay, that, that's a little less fun, but but great, the money goes in, right? And then every time we have a problem now, whether it's COVID or anything else, they send the people directly checks. And again, you can go back. I mean, you know, this is how Rome functioned for a 200 years during the decline. You just sent people money. You give them right. bread and circuses to make them happy. As things got worse, uh, they wouldn't complain so much. I mean, I'm surprised they don't subsidize Netflix so people can sit around in their houses. Well, but look, but look we, we've just had California send people $1,000 to help mitigate the cost of living crisis. I mean, I mean, you cannot make this stuff up. It's remarkable how pure politics has taken hold of everybody and forced out common sense from thinking. You know, politics is now everything. And yeah. common sense, really, really basic common sense, you know, putting more money into circulation to solve an inflation crisis is just about the dumbest thing one can imagine. And yet, 
not only do they do this stuff with a straight face, and I, I honestly don't think they realize what they're doing. I really don't. But people applaud it because it's free money. Yeah, they're, they're not thinking they're, they're reacting. They're politicians. Yes, exactly right. But they're reacting based on pure politics. They're not reacting, trying to think, here's a problem, a cost of living crisis. We need to figure out how to ameliorate it. They're thinking, oh, you know what? We can score some points here by sending money to people because we know the last 40 years have proven to us that we can pull money out of thin air and it doesn't have a bad effect. And I'm sure they're not joining the dots between all that, building, 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 to this inflationary outbreak. They're just not doing that. They've been shown that QE doesn't do anything negative and interest rates have stayed low. And so there's a, a lack of a very basic understanding of not just how the monetary system works, but also history. Well, that's right. And, and again, there, there are innumerable examples of this in history of governments that were debasing their currency. And back in, in ancient times, you didn't print money. What you did is you had you minted coins with less silver content in it and the prices would go up. And of course, the, most, the famous example everyone's aware of is Diocletian. Right, the Roman denarius went from being 95% silver to 1% silver with the tin coating, which is more or less what happened to US coins, right? I mean, <laughs> the, the penny is made of copper. It's, it's actually the copper be worth three cents now. So now, now they've just they coated it in various things, made of zinc. And, and then when prices went up, he gave his famous speech where he, the Emperor Diocletian, says the merchants are greedy and we need price controls uh, to, to keep the rich from getting richer. Of course, back then, the penalty for not buying the rice controls was, was death, was execution, of course. The penalty for not bringing goods to market at the price controls was also execution. Right? So you can imagine what happens to your economy when you're executing the merchant left and right. And again, the, the direct destination, <laughs> Athens, I mean, China, I mean, everywhere you want to go. The, and, and part of my vision of the credit cycle, again, is you go from monetary innovation and physical in addition to authoritarianism, where if the monetary side is playing with the value of your money and trying to redirect where capital goes and physical intervention is saying, we're going to take your money through taxes and spend it where we want it to go. We're going to build a giant dam, whether, whether it makes sense or not, we're just going to do it. Um, to all of a sudden saying, no, we're going to price control goods. You don't have the ability to, to decide what you're going to price. The market, we're going to basically abolish the market. And we're already seeing that in proposals. Yeah, has, yeah. They haven't rolled out yet, but they're certainly talking about it. And, and rationing. I mean, again, I read just this week that Europe is planning to ration food. I mean, Greece is already rationing uh, cooking oils and, and sugar and things like that. And then, of course, they're going to have to ration energy. But when the winter rolls around, and again, that, that's a form of price control because you're saying, look, you know, we're going to keep the prices here only, even when you, only certain politically paid people can buy this stuff, and we're going to cancel a market signal that might have a hope of bringing in more supply and limiting demand, but through, through natural ways. Well, no, they can't allow that to happen because it, it attacks their power. And, and once you're there, I mean, the economy can stagger on in the monetary side. You, know, you invest the wrong things. And, and it's unfair because you get water, water, wealth uh, distributions, but the rich get rich, the poor get poor. But you can kind of muddle along. I mean, it's, it's, it's far from ideal. Once you're in the authoritarian side of the credit cycle where the government is telling you what you've got to do and what price you've got to sell it at, then it just completely breaks down because there are no price signals. There's no way to invest capital. There's no way to rationalize your, your activity. And, and then the availability of goods gets less and less. And, and, and then the next stage after that is total collapse and revulsion of the whole, the whole government system. And, and that, that's where we're headed. But, but before we get there, I, I want to go back to, to something we skipped over a little bit. And that is 
in the physical inter- intervention, when they're spending money to build certain things, the most powerful of that is going to war. Uh, as, yeah. as, as I mentioned, you, you get rid of all the unruly young men, but I, I want to read a quotation here from 1940. So this is right before World War II. And it, it was from John T. Flynn, who was part of the old right, the pre-Buckley right wing. And he wrote, he wrote um, there's always one kind of project left that breaks down resistance to more spending, which particularly breaks down resistance among the very conservative groups who are most vocal against government spending. That is national defense. The one sure and easiest way to command national assent from all groups for more spending is to ask it for national defense. And I love the quotation because I came across a quote by Mick Mulvaney. This is President Trump's budget director uh, in, in 2018. So this is uh, what 78 years later. Quote, he said, we want money to defend the nation against things like threats from North Koreans. Publicly, the Democrats said they wanted to help fund the Defense Department. Privately, though, what they said was they would not give us a single additional dollar for defense unless we gave them a dollar for social programs. They held the Defense Department hostage, and we had to pay that ransom. And so Flynn's point, and again, he was a student of history, he saw how Italy and Germany developed from the 1860s and 80s from agrarian economy into the fascist industrial powerhouses they became through this tension between the left that always wants to spend money on everything and the right that doesn't, but they say, okay, yeah, fine. We'll, we'll do it as long as we get, we get our military. And, and here it is. I mean, this, this is what still happens. And, and then Flynn wrote, this is 1938, so he really said, you cannot have a war industry without a war scare. And having built it and made it the basis of work for 7 million men, you cannot demobilize it. And you will have to keep on inventing reasons for it. And I, I just, you read this and, and it's just it's mind boggling because he's talking about, again, a very different situation that was happening in the 30s, but it applies exactly today. I mean, the whole idea was we had a lot of military spending because of the Cold War against Russia. And the Cold War would end, and then we'd have a peace dividend. Remember the peace dividend, all that talk, and, and yeah. all the money we were spending on arms would go to social programs instead, and it wasn't great. Well, we, we have spent more per GDP on military since the end of the Cold War than we did before it. And we keep finding monsters abroad to destroy this is the, the U.S. because it's so great. I mean, the military contractors are so influential and, and it's a stimulus that the right likes and the left allows it because then they get their stimulus. And then you become, as Flynn talked about, this war machine. And I'm going to read one more quote, which is from a, a historian, Charles Beard, uh, who was the preeminent historian in the, in the 30s until he turned against Roosevelt and then he was, he was canceled, <laughs> the version of canceled. Right. He wrote... Right. Uh, and this is in, in, in 1936. This is a good four or five years before the U.S. joined World War II. He, he wrote, confronted by the difficulties of deepening domestic economic crisis and by the comparative ease of a foreign war, what will President Roosevelt do? Judging by the past history of American politicians, he will choose the latter or perhaps be more accurate to say amid powerful conflicting emotions, he will stumble into the latter. So, again, here's a guy who predicted World War II essentially several years before it happened, on an economic basis. And I bring all this up, Brett, because to me, again, we're living through an exact parallel today where the Biden and the left, they want a war, they need a war, right? Uh, you know, all, all the price increases is Putin's fault. You, you got to tighten your belt and sacrifice your economic well-being 
for the war to be patriotic, right? It's all about that. And, the, and again, all these themes were picked up, of course, by in 1984, right? Uh, I mean, by yeah. George Orwell. I mean, it, you know, that's why you always have to be at war because it creates sacrifice. And again, this is part of the credit cycle as the economy gets worse and worse. And this is all in 1984, right? The coffee gets more and more drab and, and the great five-year plans are, are to fail more and more. You need more and more war to convince people that they're sacrificing for something as yes. opposed to for socialism. It's so interesting, Dan, because when you do read history, let's take World War II, for example. When you look at the economic pressure brought to bear on Japan, for example, you look back at that now and you can see that they really had no choice but to do something, right, because of the embargoes and all all the other problems that they had. These were all economic weapons that were turned against them. And as I've read history through time, you look at, you know, the Treaty of Versailles and economic impact that had on Germany and the and you and you can you can see with the benefit of hindsight how all these dominoes toppled. And you can even rationalize something as irrational as Hitler. You know, you can rationalize that because you can see how the pressure's built to create that monster. But here we are going through that similar set of circumstances now, and the outcomes will be different, but the nature will be the same. And yet, what is it that for the most part doesn't allow people to see current circumstances either for what they are or through any kind of prism of history? It's a great question, and, and let me answer it this way. I was in Europe about two weeks ago in Liechtenstein meeting with various senior people from, from various places, a lot, lot, a lot from Eastern Europe. I would think as a rational person, like an American, I'm not really, you know, I don't have any prejudices or historical knowledge of that particularly, or, or I knowledge about it, I haven't experienced it, that if I were an Eastern European country and I remembered socially World War II and how horrendous it was, and I was within missile range of Russia, that I would really, really want a diplomatic solution to this. I mean, more than anything else. And I would be completely wrong because the Eastern Europeans hate the Russians so much because of World War II that they, they want military, they want arms. That, that they, I mean, I almost sold all my gold stocks about Raytheon after this trip. I, mean, so I, was, <laughs> I was shocked at, at just the belligerence. They don't want Russia to lose. That They want Russia to be humiliated and crushed and never rise again. I mean, the French versus Germany. And it's hard, as an American, it's hard for me to kind of feel that. I mean, I, I, can, I can understand it. I mean, intellectually, I can't really feel it emotionally. Right, um, right. Good point. Just how much they, and, and on the Russian side, um, you know, the Russians have been invaded. I thought it was five or six times, you know, major invasions. Apparently, it's more like 15 in the last 200 years from the West. And they they fear the West. Their, their country is flat as a pancake, which is great for growing wheat, not so good for military defense. And they they fear that. And again, you know, I mean, I won't bore you with all the quotations of my papers from Kissinger and George Kennedy and all those people who said, don't increase NATO because you know, all you're going to do is alienate Russia and create a conflict. And yet the neocons poured arms into one side. And that's another thing. You would think, you would hope that the hegemon nation, and again, the way nations get rich, the only way they get rich originally is through trade and industry. You work hard and you trade well, you pay the rules, and that's how you do it. That you want to protect that. And again, the beginnings of great empires, whether you look at the British Empire or the Roman Empire or the Pax Americana, the empire enforces global free trade. And they do so because it benefits them because they're a trading nation. And again, you would think that given the animosities between Eastern Europe and Russia, that the role of the U.S. should have been to go and be like, look, guys, let's come up with a deal here. We know we don't like each other, but let's do a deal. We'll enforce it and and we'll have stability and we can all get rich trading with each other. That's not what happened. 
the, the neocons came in and said, look, there can only be one power in the world, and that's us. And the extent that Iran or Russia or China gets bigger, we have to crush them. And so, therefore, instead of a balance of power outlook, which served the British so well, I mean, Britain's a pretty tiny place, and they did a pretty good job right, in the right. world for a couple of years. They said, we are going to arm one side. We'll be on one side to defeat the other side, right? And this was a hopeless calculation, I, I think partially because, and, and I have some personal view on this, but my mother was a U.S. ambassador under, under George W. Bush. And I, at one point, thought about going to the Foreign Service because I'm interested in politics and I have this background and all the rest of it. And I was told, don't bother applying because the State Department likes people from the Midwest without a passport, that they can train in their view of the world and send them out to prophetize our vision. If you show up knowing European friends, having lived in Europe and various places, they don't want that because maybe they'll go, well, you have your own ideas, they don't want that. Now, now this, this strategy of, of, of we have in the U.S., diplomatic strategy of being like, it's our way, the highway, right? Worked really well in the 50s. <laughs> When the U.S. really was the only economic military power of any of any note in the world, doesn't work very well today, and that's still the model that we have. We we dictate to other countries what they have to do, and if they don't do it, we put sanctions on them, we penalize them in various ways. And I think that the Europeans are going to discover, or are already discovering, we'll discover this winter that they may not win this. They still think that because Russia's GDP is the size of, of Italy's. And the GDPs of, of Western Europe and the U.S. is so enormous in comparison that there's no there's no contest. The, the, the North beat the South and Civil War in this country because it was more industrialized. It was richer, all the rest of it. But what they don't realize is that a lot of the GDP of the U.S. is particularly based on Apple and Facebook and Twitter and mortgage-backed securities and all that fluff is great. But it doesn't work without oil and metals and petrochemicals and all the things that Russia has. So, yeah, they're... Measured economic activity is very tiny, but there are going to be as real stuff. Now, I, I'm not a guy who thinks that that's the locus of wealth, right? Because if natural resources were how you got wealthy, then Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, these places would be the richest place on earth, and Switzerland would be a basket case, right? Right, right. It's, it's what you do with the natural resources. And that, that is, of course, true. But having built an economy, an economic system that requires certain inputs. If you suddenly take those inputs away, which is what Biden has done by canceling the pipelines and canceling drilling, if you saw, and, and the Europeans by the crazy uh, idea of starting the nuke, nuke path, you, you suddenly take away the resource that drives that economy. It simply doesn't work. It doesn't. It doesn't survive. And, and that's where they are. And people haven't, I think, woken up in Western Europe yet that the winter is going to be a very, very unhappy, unpleasant place. And how long can they continue this against? A war against the place that had the natural resources, I don't think very long. It's so interesting because we've had such a fairly benign set of tailwinds for, as I said, most of living memory. We've had 40, almost 50 years of benign tailwinds. And we have become used to things getting better, progress. But not only that, we've become used to the good guys winning. You know, and I, again, I use air quotes for that and people getting more prosperous. And so it almost feels like that's become something of a right, an entitlement. And so when you look at some of these political decisions being made, particularly around energy, as you say, quite rightly, it feels as though there's a sense that if we do the right thing, if we make the right choice, we'll be able to bend markets and people and populations and economic fundamentals to our will because it's the right thing to do. Saving the planet is the right thing to do. And we should save it now. And no matter what the constraints are, because we're doing the right thing, because we're the good guys, 
it'll work out. So we're going to keep at it. No, that's exactly right. I think there was a quote yesterday from a Biden official who said, well, the, the high price of the gas pump is the price you pay for the new liberal order. Like, yeah, if you can afford a Tesla, that's great. Most people can. And even then, as you know, I'm sure you know, listeners on too, the carbon profile of Tesla is enormous. By the time you mine all those weird materials for the battery and then, and then electricity comes from somewhere. But I, I think about this too sometimes, Grant. I spent a summer in Cyprus uh, in 1990, my aunt and archaeologists, and, and they lived there. And their next door neighbor like many people, lived in a tin corrugated hut with the chickens running around in the front yard and, and a goat kind of over there, right? And that's the way they've lived for thousands of years. Well, the credit bubble of the last 30 years in the, in the EU and Russian money and everything else, now that whole area is 50-story hotels and their car floors. Nobody's living with their chickens and their goats anymore. But the economic growth wasn't real. They haven't become more productive. It's a service economy for people who make money in speculation who may not be there. And imagine having to move back in with your goats and your chickens. I mean, that is a very hard transition to go back to. And yet it was only 30 years ago that they were living like that. And so that's very socially disruptive when the wealth runs out and all of a sudden you have to go back to real values. And, And it's why... The Great Depression scarred so many people because the 20s was a time of opulence and you read the you know, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's novels with money everywhere and, and progress, all the rest of it. And then people couldn't afford to eat a chicken. And that's why Roosevelt promised chicken every pot and he didn't deliver it, he delivered spam instead. But that, that was very disruptive. And, and I think similar things will happen today. And the people who, I mean, my, my grandparents who were very well off, they were still, you know, my grandmother was, would recycle her paper towels. I mean, she, it, it, it was that generation. You didn't waste anything. And that's what depressions do to people is they change their mindset. Nobody in that generation ever invested in stocks um, because it was. And nobody borrowed money, right? Nobody, nobody in that borrowed. generation. Borrowed. <laughs> that's right. Well, and, and no one would lend you money. So it was a fact based <laughs> economy, which, again, it's how you grow. I mean, again, you know, you just, no one reads history, but you look at the Roman Republic. And they live pretty low to the ground. And even Augustus Caesar only wore clothes spun for him by his sisters and his wife. I mean, he, he was sort of a, a down-to-earth guy. You happen to be the richest monarch who ever lived, probably. But, you know, he, that was the old Roman virtues. And you fast forward 100 years, and they're all you know having orgies all day long and, and spending a lot of money building marble palaces. And they're using their wealth that had been accumulated in a previous period. And, and I would argue the same thing happened in Egypt. I mean, Egypt became very, very wealthy because of good organization around the Nile Delta. And then they wasted all their money building those pyramids. And it's a great building program. But what do they have at the end of the day when they finish the pyramids? And the answer was nothing. Uh, and, and that's the, again, the, the stimulus by its nature uh, creates assets that, that don't produce anything or produce or not very much compared to the inputs of it. And that makes society poor. And eventually there is a moment when society has to revert back to living with what it produces. I mean, you cannot consume when you produce for very long. And, and that's where the world is headed. Uh, and Powell's accelerating this, of course, by, by raising interest rates. Uh, and it's going to be very, very ugly. Um, and, and you know, hopefully, through cleverness, looking at history, one can navigate through this and retain some of that wealth. I mean, that, that's why I'm in the gold business, because, again, you look through history, gold is free market money. And we see it bouncing around at the moment because obviously when you have $100 trillion of dollar-denominated debt that requires interest payments all along, and the Fed is, is promising to reduce the quantity of dollars and increase the interest rates to increase the cost, you've got to maintain that debt, there's a giant dollar squeeze. Of course there is. 
right? And then things start blowing up left and right. And the question is how long will they let that process go before they blink and put the money to allow people to pay their debts? But when they do it, of course, then the dollar lurches lower, people want encouraged to take on more debt. And that's been the story for decades. And so at what point does the debt fail and what does it look like? And that's that's why I'm in the gold space. I think we're reaching so far down this credit cycle. We're, you know, we're in the bubble collapse phase simultaneously with the monetary innovation phase, right? And that's a little vacation now, but we'll come back with the vengeance. There's going to be physical stimulus. We've been living that last two years, right? And now we have war and authoritarianism. I mean, it's it's all it's all kind of the singularity right now. All, all these different themes as they desperately try to keep the whole system alive. And then they get this war against resources, both literally against Russia and figuratively against the atmosphere and Mother Earth, uh, it, it is, is going to lead to disaster. I think it leads to disaster pretty pretty quickly. Well, let's finish by just talking through and, and using that historical lens and, and your, I mean, encyclopedic knowledge of these cycles to just talk about how you see the next period, and I don't want to put a time frame on that next period, but really I'm, I'm interested in the kind of progression from here, not when all this happens, but looking at where we are and, and haven't been able to see where we've been headed for some time now, what comes next for this? What do people need to be looking out for in terms of recognizing, okay, here's the next phase of this cycle on the way to the, the collapse? Yeah, yeah, I think we've talked about it before, but just to, to pull it together, I mean, we're in a place where the economy needs to be stimulated constantly to keep going, but that creates asset bubbles. So right now, the Fed, as it has done in the past, is trying to rein in the asset bubble, but they're going to wind up killing the economy as well. And so at some point, the Fed is going to pivot because they're going to have to pivot. They're going to put the money again. Now, they may try to do it selectively. I know there's a bill in Congress that, that would require the Fed to lend on equity principles meaning racial preferences. So, so maybe they, they put the money in different ways, the way Obama sent checks to some people, whereas Bush sent checks to everybody. I mean, they're both bad, but I think one is worse. And, and so I, you're going to get more stimulus because they have to without, unless they want to collapse the entire economy. That will raise prices, I mean, you know, for sure. Uh, I think we'll see more war. The war will accelerate because, again, they need the war both for stimulus purposes and because it's patriotic and because it gives people an excuse to say why people are suffering. Well, it's Putin's price hike, right? It's Putin's problem. So you got to have more war to make the whole thing work. And then when prices go up, they're going to have to have price controls or rationing. And again, we're already seeing hints of that. It's going to come. Uh, it'll look like sending checks to dust certain people so they can buy gas at a higher price. So you can keep demand constant for people who vote for you and, and take away from people who don't vote for you. And, and that, that's part of this whole story. And, and that leads more to social disintegration, right? I mean, it, it, which is a problem. So that, then you, that's the authoritarian state, which is coming, I mean, we're not here yet, but it is on its way shortly. And, yeah. and then yeah. the question is how much resilience does the economy and society have to put up with the economic dislocations? I mean, so far it's been, well, you, you, you can't get the toy you want or the chair didn't show up or, or okay, you, you can't buy this brand of something, you buy a different brand. Okay. But, you know, looking forward, what it's going to be, you can't buy basic things you want, or they're just so expensive, you can't afford it anymore. You, I mean, meat consumption has gone way down already, apparently, because people simply can't afford it. At what point does the economic coordination break down so much that you get a political revulsion? And I don't mean just with the polls, I mean, deeper than that. And and, and that's coming too. again. You know, Anna Smith said there's a lot of ruin in a nation. And it takes a long time. And as Gibbon said about the Roman Empire, the 
in his famous book about it, which is brilliant. Um, it, the surprise wasn't a collapse. The surprise was it took so long to collapse. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It was so badly run. And so it's, it's hard to put a time on all these events. But I will say that they're all either happening now or about to happen. You can see it coming. And I don't think that in a tremendously complex economy that we have today, that a big declining coordination lasts very long. I think the, the, a big collapse comes in, in pretty short order after you start putting wheels on this incredibly complex machine that we've that we've built over the last 40, 50 years. So, so last question for you, and I'll let you go, but what does this mean for capital? Because obviously we go back to the period we talked about previously and we saw the banning of gold, for example. And a lot of people think gold is the answer to this, but once again, it's not a simple answer. Do you think we could see a, a sort of executive order 6102 redux at some point where private ownership of gold is banned? Have we gone too far in terms of the dispersion of that for it to happen now? What does it mean for capital and how should people think about the sensible ways to navigate this, at least in an elemental sense? How, how do you put things in place that will give you a chance at, through a collapse? Yeah, well, let's first distinguish between physical capital and financial capital. I think you're talking about financial okay. capital. I, but, yes, I am. I am, but, yeah. but we can we can discuss both for sure. But but I mean, I, but it's, it's good to keep both in mind because, I mean, physical capital is extraordinarily useful. And I say that because, again, you read the history of inflation, it's big and small. The people who get really, really crushed by this are middle-class office workers in the cities. They have no physical capital. Like you live in an apartment and every, you're relying on everything that you consume for a big, long production chain. And you go work at some intellectual thing where you're producing paper of something or other, the value of which goes down. So you lose your financial capital. You have no physical capital to step back on and your, your earnings power disappears. And so that, that that's the worst place to be. And, and it's something that many realists probably should probably be cognizant of. I mean, I think I, I moved the country two years ago, as you may know from the city. And you know, I see people who are lower down the economic scale, a lot more resilient than I am. I mean, when things, Go to crap, you know. The, the carpenters, they'll be, be just fine, I think. The hedge fund managers may be a little more, you know, have a little more problems. So, physical capital is one thing to think about. And can you get some? And how can you get some to help you out in the future? And, and I mean, I know when I visited Bulgaria in the 1990s, they called it the jar economy. The city workers would get little quarter acre plots out in the country, and they would grow literally grow food there. And they would go out and harvest it and eat it. I mean, it was things were so bad; it was like that. So it's something something to think about. I, don't, I hope we don't get just get that bad, but it can. In terms of financial capital, the reason I like gold so much is because it's both, right? It's a physical thing that's also financial capital. I would say it's the only thing that has a characterization, perhaps silver, in, in a sense too. But gold and silver are really the only objects that straddle both worlds, which is why it becomes so valuable in, in these moments. But in terms of financial capital and, and your question about nationalization, I mean, nationalization has already happened in a sense. What I mean by that is the ESG nonsense and the SEC proposing rules whereby passive investors who now control the bulk of capital must invest in certain things and companies must behave in a certain way that the leftist overlords want them to. And so your capital is already being controlled. It's already been directed into non-productive places because the state mandate that it be so. But there, it's non-productive. I mean, it's loss-making. And so that, that capital is, is very uh, tenuous. Uh, in terms of gold confiscation, FDR made possession of gold, I think it was a $10,000 fine, which in those days from like a million dollars, and 10 years in prison. I don't believe anyone was ever prosecuted under that, that law. It was much to scare you. And 
I think the numbers, very little gold actually came in. It's very hard to do that. What Sam and Chase did, that this is a Lincoln's Treasury Secretary in the Civil War, he, he put an enormous transaction tax on gold to try to immobilize it. And, uh, and I think that's more what they would do. It's, it's just too, you know, the U.S. is not a place yet where they're going to send stormtroopers into your house and, and ramsack your basement or your, your, your underwear drawer or whatever looking for your, your gold. I just, I just don't think we're there yet. Now, they're doing that to political opponents, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're in that direction already, but I have a hard time envisioning that. But some sort of giant transaction tax. But but I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I, I do want to tell a story of, of what happened to Sam and Chase's uh, initiative. I think it's very instructive. When FDR banned the ownership of gold, the Fed Reserve was backed by about two-thirds gold it had commercial bills. These are 90-day commercial paper. And it had government bonds of a government with almost no debt. Andrew Mellon had paid back almost all the debt uh, during uh, the 20s. And so, in fact, the Fed's balance sheet was incredibly solid. And to the extent that a dollar represents a claim on that balance sheet, even though you can't redeem it, you can still trade it, it still backs the value, the dollar was fine. I mean, the problem that they had back then, so they thought, was the dollar was getting too strong. That was not the case in the 1860s. When the U.S. was fighting the Civil War, and Sam and Chase went to the New York banks to raise money for the war, and the banks said, forget it, and which is why they had to pass the Lilo Tender Act. Uh, they had to pass the National Banking Act and ban gold. And because the government was such in bad physical shape, when he banned the transaction of gold, gold didn't collapse. The dollar collapsed. The greenbacks collapsed. And they actually rescinded the tax two weeks later because they realized, wait a sec, if you can't trade your greenbacks for gold. Nobody wants the greenbacks. It's only the ability to trade that gives it value. And so, again, taking those two same policy, but different situations and looking at what happens, we today are obviously much, much more like the 1860s than the 1930s. We don't have a, a central bank that's backed mostly by gold and, and a government with no debt and commercial bills. We have a government that is backed by 30 government bonds of an insolvent Congress and mortgage backed securities of a real estate market that's collapsing. Now, that's not good asset value. And so if they ban gold, so you can no longer take your dollars and buy gold with them, it's the dollar that collapses, not gold. So I, I can't wait for that to happen. Fascinating. You know, if I've learned nothing else today, Dan, it's if I'm going to hide my gold, don't put it in the basement or my underwear drawer, if those are the two places <laughs> that I look. Listen, um, Mine's not there either. Just, 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 okay. just, so, just so everybody knows. Listen, it, it, you know, every chance I get to talk to you, Dan, I relish, and this has been no exception. It's, been, it's so fascinating to pick your brain, and you have just such an incredible way of communicating this historical context that I think is just so valuable for people. So thank you for being so generous with this time and, and spending it with me. Well, I, I love talking about stuff, as you can tell, and uh, hopefully one day I'll get my book out. It's not done yet to save the emails, but I, it will come out one day. <laughs> I, listen, I'm going to make you commit now in public to coming and talking to me again once it finally comes out, or in five years, whichever comes first. I will agree. <laughs> All right, then. Take care of yourself, and I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. Absolutely riveting. You know, any conversation with Dan tends to leave one feeling woefully undereducated in terms of history, and yet at the same time possessed of, I don't know, a rare gift in terms of understanding our likely future. Now, for those of you who don't already follow him, you can and should remedy that, frankly, by finding him on Twitter, at Myrmican, and it's M-Y-R-M-I-K-N. And you can find him uh, more information about Dan and, and Mermican Capital at mermican.com. Again, M-Y-R-M-I-K-A-N. Also, Dan's long-awaited book, Golden Tears, A History of Credit Bubbles, will, he promises me, be published one day. And you can find out more about that project if you visit goldentears.org. That's all from me for another episode. My thanks to you, as always, 
for giving up your time to listen to me. I'll be back again soon with another podcast. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.